proud of Nelson and the many other English heroes. Another coat also inspires awe. When you enter the large central hall of the Maritime Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, to your left is a very tall glass case with an enormous gray leather coat. It is made of elk hide and served as the foul-weather coat for Peter the Great, who stood so tall, literally and figuratively, among the Russians. When you look up at this great coat, you cannot help but feel the greatness of Tsar Peter. These coats and the flag are simple objects, utilitarian objects of their times, and yet they have acquired enormous power because of the history associated with them. This book was inspired by another simple object, preserved in a museum, a small boat. In 1969, I began work as a research associate at Mystic Seaport, America's leading maritime museum in Mystic, Connecticut. Within days of arrival, I came upon a sturdy wooden boat on exhibit on the grounds of this large outdoor maritime history museum. I read the brief description of this jolly boat, which had come from an English freighter, and its remarkable voyage, and instantly had that feeling that here was one of those exceptionally powerful objects. Through this boat, you can physically connect with people and events of the early days of World War II. A year later, I was asked to take on the responsibilities of Chief Curator of Mystic Seaport, which included the care of the watercraft collection and this remarkable boat. Seven years later, I became the director of the museum and had responsibility for all aspects of the museum's operation, including the jolly boat. For virtually all of my career at Mystic Seaport, I was conscious of this boat and her extraordinary story. Toward the end of my time at Mystic, I was contacted by relatives of the men whose lives had been linked to this boat nearly sixty years before. Their request was for the return of the boat to her country of origin. It was clear that while the story surrounding this boat has resonance in virtually any country, the boat herself, with her powerful personal connections, belonged in England. After prolonged and complicated discussions and arrangements, this goal was achieved, and today the boat is the central object in the Battle of the Atlantic exhibition in London's Imperial War Museum. I had been moved by the story in 1969, and was even more intrigued as I came to know relatives of the merchant mariners associated with the boat. My own grandfather was a merchant marine officer who had served in World War I, and I was aware of the vital role these sailors played in both world wars of the twentieth century. To me, this boat and the story of which it is a part are symbolic of the courage and sacrifice of dauntless merchant sailors and their families, and I hope that by telling this story in the broad context of the period leading up to the war, the war itself, and the time following up to the present, to pay tribute to the Allied merchant mariners. In the darkness before dawn on the 21st day of August 1940, an English tramp steamer was making her way south in the Atlantic Ocean toward a fateful rendezvous. When darkness fell at the end of that day, it brought the end of the ship and the end of the lives of most of her crew. It also brought the beginning of the remarkable voyage of a small boat that was filled with courage, sacrifice, 
and fortitude. The English ship was the Anglo-Saxon, and she was doing what hundreds of other tramps did, carrying cargo to a far distant port, where once it was discharged, they would take on another, perhaps very different cargo, for their next port. The Anglo-Saxon had been doing this work for over a decade, but now what had once been routine was linked to the very survival of her home country. England had been at war with Germany for almost a year. The first six months of that war were deadly at sea, with Allied shipping preyed upon by German submarines and warships. With the spring came the incredible advance of the German Blitzkrieg, sweeping across Holland and Belgium and into France. Denmark was occupied by its neighbor to the south, and Norway was invaded in April of 1940. England and her allies had endured the humiliating rout that called for the heroic rescue of more than 300,000 Allied troops from the beaches of Dunkirk on the French northern coast. Nearly 1,000 vessels of every size and description were engaged. It was a Herculean feat that ultimately enabled the Allies to reorganize, re-equip, and redeploy their forces for ultimate victory. But in the summer of 1940, the picture remained grim. The British had witnessed the collapse of one country after another in the path of the seemingly unstoppable Nazi war machine. With the fall of France in June, England found herself standing alone in the face of this fearsome military power. The British girded themselves for invasion, marshalling every available resource for the defense of their island. But seaborne invasion did not immediately come. Hitler had the greatest confidence in the man he had just promoted to Reichsmarschall, Hermann Göring, who by 1939 had developed the strongest air force in the world. Göring was certain of the effectiveness of his Luftwaffe, which had been used so decisively against the Poles, Norwegians, Dutch, Belgians, Danes, and French. The German invasion of England began with an air assault that the Nazi leaders incorrectly anticipated would bring England to her knees and make a land invasion a simple task. The men of the Anglo-Saxon were intimately aware of the precarious position of their country, since the air attacks had begun in mid-June, and the Battle of Britain raged in the skies as they prepared to depart. The sailors understood the dangers that awaited them, and the critical importance of the role of the merchant navy. This was a fight for their families, their homes, and their country. Their duty was clear, and their response resounding. On that late August morning, however, the war and its dangers seemed remote and distant. The ship had departed England two weeks earlier in the relative safety of a convoy, protected by air cover and several small warships. The waters near England were infested with deadly German U-boats, and the arrival and departure from these home waters was often the most dangerous part of a voyage. Once safely out of this danger zone, the Anglo-Saxon had chosen her own time to break off from the convoy and head on a more southerly course toward her own destination in South America. As the sun rose on the 21st, the cold of the northern Atlantic had been left behind, and the crew felt the warmth of the sun as they neared the Tropic of Cancer. While there were still threats, each mile they steamed away from the seat of conflict would ease their minds. 
The U-boat menace was largely focused on the shipping lanes of the northern Atlantic, and the ship was also beyond the range of land-based aircraft that might attack. With literally miles of water between them and the ocean floor, this was not an area where mines were a danger. During the day, the crew attended to all the endless maintenance tasks, large and small, needed to keep their 426-foot ship and her deck machinery functioning. There was the windlass used to raise the huge anchors, the winches, cables, and cranes used for cargo handling, the life rafts and lifeboats, and the equipment to launch them. The ship's hull and superstructure, with continuous exposure to the sea and the elements, needed constant attention. By mid-morning, the day's work would be well underway. That day's work would also be underway on another ship nearby, heading in the opposite direction. This appeared also to be a merchant ship from a neutral country. Instead of persistently heading in the direction of her next port with her cargo, this other ship reversed course at 10.30 that morning. Her lookouts, perched as high as possible on the cargo masts, had spotted the Anglo-Saxon five minutes earlier, and the response was immediate. Within another five minutes, the two ships were on almost parallel southerly courses. The Anglo-Saxon's new companion behaved strangely for a merchant ship, Instead of the purposeful focused steaming from one port to another, this ship had been ominously meandering in the mid-Atlantic for three months, never entering any port. Disguised as the neutral Swedish freighter Narvik, the ship had entered the Atlantic in May. Beneath this disguise was...